Welcome to Music History Monday for January 11th, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Prokofiev, Romeo and Juliet, and the Bitch Goddess. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the first performance of Sergei Prokofiev's ballet, Romeo and Juliet, on January 11, 1940, 81 years ago today, by the Kirov Ballet in Leningrad, what today is St. Petersburg. Prokofiev was born on April 23, 1891 in Ukraine. He attended the St. Petersburg Conservatory as both a pianist and composer and graduated in 1914, first in his class. His rise to fame as both a pianist and composer was meteoric, and by 1917, the 26-year-old Prokofiev had come to be considered among Russia's very best and brightest. Unfortunately, that's also when current events had their way with him. By 1917, World War I had been raging for three years. As the only son of a widow, Prokofiev had not been called up into the Russian army, a good thing, considering that four million Russians died in combat between 1914 and 1917. Violent frustration over the Russian war effort led Tsar Nicholas II to abdicate on March 2, 1917. An armed insurrection brought Vladimir Lenin's Bolshevik party to power in November of 1917, and the Russian Civil War began. The Civil War would last for five horrific years and kill an additional nine million Russians. In 1918, Deciding that things were becoming a bit dicey there in Russia, Prokofiev decided that the time was right for a brief trip abroad. He later wrote, quote, On May 7, 1918, I started my journey, which was to take me abroad for only a few months, or so I thought, unquote. Yeah, in reality, it would be 18 years before Prokofiev permanently returned home. His first stop in 1918 was the United States. In 1923, he decamped to Paris, which remained his home base until 1936. Prokofiev experienced genuine success during these years as both a pianist and composer, but he never felt fully appreciated or at home in the West. So when he was invited, to return permanently to the Soviet Union in 1936, he jumped at what he considered to be a great opportunity. It was, in fact, the single biggest mistake he ever made, a mistake he shared with Napoleon and Hitler, who also believed they could march through Russia in victorious triumph. Prokofiev's personality and the dangers of narcissism. A prodigy, as both a pianist and composer, in 1904, at the age of 13, 
Prokofiev entered the St. Petersburg Conservatory. He was not a popular student. In fact, he was, by all surviving accounts, a total jerk. He would laugh out loud when his fellow piano students made mistakes and went so far as to actually keep a roster of the mistakes committed by his classmates. I would tell you that this would have earned him a broken kneecap or two where I grew up in South Jersey. Prokofiev's likability quotient did not improve with age. According to Harold Schoenberg, quote, he was stubborn, ill-tempered, obstinate, and surly. He had pink skin that would turn red when he was in a rage, which was often. He disturbed everybody, always ready with a crushing repartee, with an irritating chuckle and a celebrated leer, unquote. According to Prokofiev's friend, Nicholas Nabokov, his rudeness, quote, bordered on sadistic cruelty, unquote. No composer before or since, including Mr. Angry himself, Beethoven, was so quick to take offense and lash out as viciously, both verbally and legally, oh, Prokofiev was always suing somebody, as did Prokofiev. The hoary old bromide that's always applied to curmudgeons like Beethoven and Brahms, still he had a heart of gold has not, to my knowledge, ever been applied to Prokofiev. He was a naive and narcissistic kvetch, and that naivete and narcissism played an essential role in his return to the Soviet Union. Musicologist Rita McAllister writes of Prokofiev's move to the Soviet Union, quote, Naively, Prokofiev disregarded the political implications of such a move. He had never held any strong political views. He may well have assumed that the Soviet authorities would respect this and that if any pressures were being brought to bear on composers, they somehow would not apply to him. Quite simply, he wanted to go home. Throughout his stay in the West, he had never ceased to be, above all, a Russian. He had made acquaintances, but his real friends were Russians and were in the Soviet Union. He missed the support and confidence of these people. Most of all, he missed the vital stimulus of being in the company of Russians in Russia." Unquote. Needless to say, the Russian emigre community was scandalized by Prokofiev's move. Igor Stravinsky spoke for many when he declared, quote, Prokofiev was always very Russian-minded, but in my opinion, this had little to do with his return to Russia, which was a sacrifice to the bitch goddess of greed and nothing else. He had no success in the United States or Europe for several seasons, while his visits to Russia had been triumphs. He was politically naive, so he returned to Russia. And when finally he understood his position there, it was too late." Unquote. Oh yeah, at first everything was great. Prokofiev's return there in 1936 was a public relations bonanza for Stalin's regime. The workers' paradise had reclaimed a prodigal son. 
Prokofiev was honored and celebrated, and for a couple of years, he was even allowed to travel abroad. On one such trip to New York in 1937, Prokofiev visited the Russian émigré composer Vladimir Dukelsky, who, under the nom de plume Vernon Duke, composed, among other ditties, the songs I Can't Get Started, April in Paris, and Autumn in New York. Dukelsky recalled, quote, I asked Sergei a difficult question. I wanted to know how he could live and work in the atmosphere of Soviet totalitarianism. Sergei was quiet for a moment and then said, Here is how I feel about it. I care nothing for politics. I'm a composer first and last. Any government that lets me write my music in peace, publishes everything I compose before the ink is dry, and performs every note that comes from my pen is all right with me." Unquote. Nothing more starkly underlined Prokofiev's epic naivete than the blue Ford sedan he bought while on tour in the United States and had shipped back to Moscow. Private cars were an unheard of luxury in Moscow in 1937, and boy oh boy, did his Soviet colleagues hate him for having it. It was a reminder to everyone of Prokofiev's privileged status in what was presumably a proletarian society. But Prokofiev, naive to the point of absurdity, was accustomed to material luxuries, and he saw no reason why he should have to give them up. What turned out to be Prokofiev's last trip out of the Soviet Union was a North American tour in 1938. While in New York, Prokofiev asked Vladimir Dukelsky to go shopping with him. Dukelsky remembered, quote, he asked, will you come to Macy's with me? I've got to buy a room full of things you can't get in Russia. Just look at my wife Lena's list. The list was imposing, and we went to Macy's, another example of capitalistic bait designed by the lackeys of Wall Street to be swallowed by oppressed workers. Sergei enjoyed himself hugely in the store. He loved gadgets and trinkets of every description. Suddenly, he turned to me, his eyes moist, and said, you know, Dima, it occurred to me that I may not be back for some time. I don't suppose it would be wise for you to come to Russia, would it? No, I don't suppose it would, I answered. I never saw Prokofiev again." Unquote. That's because after this trip, Prokofiev was never again allowed to leave the Soviet Union. We can only shake our heads. Was Prokofiev unaware of the collectivization and forced starvations that killed millions of Soviet citizens in the early 1930s? Of the show trials and reign of terror that corresponded precisely with his return in 1936? Was he not aware of the possibly fatal censure of Dmitry Shostakovich and his opera Lady Macbeth in January of 1936? 
did he not understand that the role of music in the Soviet Union was to promote the state and not to gratify the expressive desires of its composers? Yes, Prokofiev knew and understood all of this. But he believed that none of it had anything to do with him. Well, he was wrong. Dmitry Shostakovich understood Prokofiev's true position with painful clarity. Quote, Prokofiev was an inveterate gambler who thought he had calculated perfectly. For some 15 years, Prokofiev sat between two stools. In the West, he was considered a Soviet, and in Russia, they welcomed him as a Western guest. And then Prokofiev decided that it would be more profitable for him to move to the USSR. Such a step would only raise his stock in the West because things Soviet were becoming fashionable just then, and they would stop considering him a foreigner in the USSR, and therefore he would win all around. And this is where Prokofiev landed, like a chicken in soup. He came to Moscow to teach them, and they started teaching him." Unquote. The fate of Prokofiev's ballet, Romeo and Juliet, offers up an object lesson in just how wrong he was. The commission for the ballet was one of the incentives the Soviets offered Prokofiev for his return. He composed the ballet in 1935 and then moved to the Soviet Union in 1936, prepared to oversee its production. But the planned Bolshoi ballet production did not take place. The excuse given was that Prokofiev had substituted a happy ending. His reasons for having done so were purely practical. Prokofiev explained, quote, the reason for taking such barbarous liberty with Shakespeare's play was purely choreographic. Live people can dance, but the dying can hardly be expected to dance, unquote. But in fact, it was Prokofiev's music, spiky, often modernistic, and wholly individualistic, what the Soviet authorities disparagingly called formalistic. It was Prokofiev's music that struck fear in the hearts of the Bolshoi's directors. In the terrifying and paranoid Stalinist Soviet artistic climate of 1936, no one was willing to risk producing a ballet with such music. It's no surprise then that the Bolshoi's planned performance of Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet was canceled sometime in late 1935 or early 1936. There is no record of Prokofiev's reaction to the cancellation, but after all the time and effort he had invested in the ballet's massive score, it must have been volcanic. In 1937, a planned performance in Leningrad as part of the celebrations surrounding the 20th anniversary of the revolution fell through as well. In those days of the Great Terror, the people Prokofiev had been working with began disappearing, one after the other, into the maw of Stalin's purges never to be heard from again. The ballet finally received its premiere in 1938 in Czechoslovakia, 
though without Prokofiev's participation, because by the date of the premiere, he was no longer permitted to leave the Soviet Union. That a major work by a major Soviet composer was premiered abroad was a major embarrassment for the Soviets. A Soviet performance had to be rustled up ASAP. And so it was. The man in charge was Leonid Lavrovsky, the newly appointed choreographer of Leningrad's Kirov Theater. Lavrovsky demanded changes to the music. Prokofiev refused. Lavrovsky demanded changes to the story. Prokofiev refused. But Lavrovsky's head was on the block, so he made the changes anyway, changes that infuriated the already prickly Prokofiev. Galina Ulanova, who danced the role of Juliet in the production, remembered Prokofiev this way, quote, From the day of the first read-through, a sullen, tall man sat in the hall almost every day. He looked around with hostility and anger, especially at our dancers." Unquote. But in fact, it was the choreographer Leonid Lavrovsky and his changes that so enraged Prokofiev. Perhaps, perhaps, maybe. Prokofiev was wise enough to also be a bit angry with himself because, perhaps, maybe, he was starting to realize how things had to be done in the Soviet Union if he was to keep his head. And perhaps, maybe, he was also angry because at some deep place within himself, he was beginning to realize what an epic mistake he had made by returning to the Soviet Union. Perhaps, maybe. The ballet received its Soviet premiere on January 11th, 1940, 81 years ago today. It was a huge success and was awarded the Stalin Prize, the Soviet Union's highest cultural honor. We can only hope that Prokofiev expressed his gratitude to Leonid Lavrovsky for both making the production happen and for saving his neck, though we suspect Prokofiev did not say thank you. Conclusion in 1933, Prokofiev told a French friend, quote, The air of foreign lands does not inspire me because I am Russian. I must again immerse myself in the atmosphere of my homeland. I must hear Russian speech and talk with the people dear to me. This will give me what I lack here, for Russian songs are my songs, unquote. At the time he returned to Soviet Russia in 1936, Prokofiev was proud to be a Soviet artist. But in the end, harsh reality destroyed Prokofiev's naivete. In 1948, he was condemned as an enemy of the people. He died a broken man on March 5, 1953, the same day as Joseph Stalin. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.